So here we are really in the heart of the retreat and really taking a moment to pause and acknowledging you know, coming to this place in a retreat after the first few days where there can be quite a lot of challenges and difficulties. It's a time of stilling and calming. It's not to say there are no more challenges or difficulties. But inclining the mind towards calming, stilling, receptivity and intimacy with oneself. An uncomplicated intimacy with oneself. Just that willingness to meet oneself, to be a friend to oneself. To embrace each moment with as much kindness, as much compassion, as much clarity as we can muster. Now, to this morning, I, I want to speak actually a little bit more about Vedana, this feeling tone of experience. Because it's very easy for people to find this domain of establishing mindfulness quite difficult. It feels quite subtle. It feels quite remote. We're not quite sure what we're supposed to be contacting. And yet, of course, in the Buddha's presentation of liberation... Understanding Vedana is so key, so pivotal. As the Buddha put it, Vedana is the queen of consciousness. It's the queen of consciousness. It rules consciousness. It says, in all of our experience. Now, the first thing to say is really, we sometimes try to make this too complicated because when Vedna is translated as feeling, our minds automatically go to something more complex like emotion. Vedana is much, much more simple, more basic, more foundational than that. It's sometimes referred to as the hedonic tone of experience, which for a lot of people means absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> But it's it's like the taste of experience, the taste of experience. And each one of us sitting here right now are experiencing numerous Vedana tones. What does the touch of the air on your skin feel like right now? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither? What does the contact of your knee on the cushion or your foot on the floor feel like right now? What's the taste of that experience? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Listen to the sound outside the window before we begin to label it. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither? Look at your mood right now. Whatever mood you're sitting with right now. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? It is neither. So every moment of experience is imbued with Vedana tone. Every sensory impression carries a Vedana tone that is registering in consciousness. Now, here we have a lot of silence, but I'm sure as we move out into our lives where there's more talking, more communication, 
we become aware that we, we really truly live in very different worlds, don't we? You know, we imagine we all see the world exactly the same. We only need to listen to another person and realize we live in very, very different worlds. For someone coming to IMS who's, you know, has a wonderful, who's had some wonderful times here, loves it, you know, just the sight of the building has a pleasant Vedna tone. And we think, isn't that amazing to be here? Oh, you know, it's fantastic, it's great. For someone who comes to IMS for the first time, with whatever apprehensions, with whatever uncertainties they bring, this can look like a threatening place, an uncomfortable place. The snow is starting to melt. If you're a skier, it's an unpleasant Vedna tone. If you've been locked in Massachusetts winter for the last five months, you know, it's, ah, that's a pleasant Vedna tone. We live in very, very different worlds, and even our worlds change moment to moment, dependent on the Vedna tone of the moment. Now, when we talk about the four ways of establishing mindfulness in body, in Vedana, and I almost encourage you, you know, there's not very many Pali words I encourage people to adopt, but when we have such inadequate English translations, I almost think it's better to adopt the Pali, just cut out our associations with emotion. There's a few words I think are really important like that, and Vedana is one, Sati is my other preoccupation. Um, But when we talk about the four ways of establishing mindfulness in body, in Vedana, in mind states, in mood, in phenomena and process, it's very important to remember these are not linear, they're not sequential, and they are not separate. Because every aspect of these four ways of establishing mindfulness is really describing our life of the moment, our experience of the moment. Having sat with your body, walked with your body over these days, you've probably been aware of a lot of different Vedana tones in your body. Pleasant, maybe less than you'd like. Unpleasant, maybe more than you'd like. Some which is neither. But you start to get that taste of experience within the body process, within the the spectrum of sensations that you experience. Now, Vedana tones can have a very powerful impact in shaping mood, don't they? If something is unpleasant, generally, you know, the mood is not one bright and chirpy. You know, we we see how Vedana tone shapes mood. We actually see how mood is shaping our Vedana tone of the moment. You know, if, if the mood is low and we see the world through the eyes of that low mood, we will see a lot of unpleasant Vedana tones before we even get into the narrative. If the mood is bright, we, ex- we see actually a lot of pleasant Vedana tones. Now, so, as we once said, that we tend to think of our minds like a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world as it is, not appreciating that our mind is the principal aspect in the creation of that world. Okay, so this is very important. 
The Buddha was interested, deeply interested in how our world of experience is being shaped moment to moment because this is what we live with and this is where we find distress and this is where we find the end of distress. And what the Buddha really emphasized is the way in which, and, and language here is really difficult because when I say we are the architects of our world, It kind of sounds sort of blaming and judgment. And this is simply a shortcoming of the English language, you know, where we feel ourselves to be so, you know, through language, place ourselves so centrally in in all things, you know. So when I say we are the architects of our world, please don't take that as a sort of blaming, shaming statement. But, you know, so take it quite neutrally, please, you know. It's not your fault, (laughs) the world you live in. It's not your fault. It's a whole range of conditions coming together to have a world of the moment. But we are the architects in our world. You know, many of our experiences of, of difficulty, of suffering, are created and recreated through the enactment of certain patterns, both psychological, emotional, behavioral patterns, we walk in circles. We walk in circles. We are also the architects of this understanding and of changing the shape of our world uh, through, through the, the qualities, the ennobling qualities we cultivate through the understandings that come to us, through the investigations that come to us, the shape of our world changes. It is shaped in different ways. So the Buddha was very interested in, in really, I'm having a problem here, was really interested in really looking at how, how our world is being shaped moment to moment. And I, I hope that you will pick up that interest in how your world is being shaped moment to moment. And he looked at, at mind as a process. Okay, So it's not actually really true in, in terms of Buddhist psychology to speak about mind as a thing, as, a, as you know, this kind of construct. It's probably more accurate in Buddhist psychology to to say that we're deeply interested in the process of minding. Hmm? We're deeply interested in this process of constructing. I think that's really a relief, you know, because very often we use this word mind with a capital letter, you know, my mind is doing this, you know. No, it is a process of minding, and that process is a process that basically gets stuck in place through identification. And that's when we say, my mind is like this, or I am my mind. So we're really look interested in this process of minding. And you know, from you know, the perspective of both Buddhist psychology and Western psychology, we'd really be interested in looking at cognitive chains, how our world of the moment is being shaped, what is happening in the mind, in that shaping process. So the Buddha presented this very simple, well, simple, (laughs) fairly simple proposal. 
that there is a process that we can track, and this is a very universal process. This is not a personal process. It's a very universal process of how the mind works. So Narayan's mentioned this yesterday. It begins with contact. Every moment of constructing our world begins with contact. The meeting of the eye with the sight and the seeing. The meeting of the mind with the thought and the thinking. The meeting of the body with the sensation and the sensing. So this is contact, and this is all quite neutral, you know, it's ethically neutral, it's, it's just simply part of being a live human being. So what we contact, we feel. So that sensory impression in that moment of contact is carrying a feeling tone. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now, this is also quite ethically neutral. This is simply part of being an alive human being. It's the next bit that gets interesting, that what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. Hmm? We label. We have a name for it. Hmm? What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. And what we proliferate about becomes a shape of our mind. And I wonder if any of you can trace that process in your experience. You go to breakfast. You look at the board. I, sight, seeing. Hmm? Maybe quite neutral. Badener wise. Neutral is not a good word. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But then, then you perceive. You know, you ah, millet. We may have a whole history with millet we don't even recognize. You know, millet. Ah. Unpleasant. Where are the eggs? Where are the bagels? What's with this millet business? We start to proliferate about, you know, why, does I, why do meditation centers do this millet business? You know, blah, 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 blah. We proliferate about, we dwell upon, the mind is shaped. We've already got, you know, a mind which is shaped by that whole process. You know, maybe now we have a contracted mind. We chunter our way through breakfast, you know. The bell goes. We're chuntering our way into the meditation room, you know. And then you come in here and, you know, you pass by maybe the Kuan Yin in the walking room. Eye, sight, seeing, pleasant. Oh, it's lovely. I wonder where they got that. I like that. I wouldn't mind. I got my get my phone out. You know, I, uh, you know, it, shape of the mind changes. So this is something very trackable, very traceable in our experience. Now, as I mentioned, the contact, the meeting of the sense door, sensory impression, all quite neutral. The feeling is actually just as it is: pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. The perception comes in and we know something. We know something. How we know something is often how we've known it before. Perception and memory are traveling that same neural pathway. It's how we've known it before. I don't have much interest in experiencing Millet anew. 
because I've known it before. And I know what Millard's like. I don't need to see it anew. So perception almost immediately is signaling a kind of response. Wittgenstein once said that words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. I find that so amazing. You know, you see someone you haven't seen in 10 years and you've had a particular encounter with them. You might be irritated with somebody here, come on a retreat 10 years later, you see that person and what you see is your captivation by, by the perception, by the word. You don't see anew. We do this to ourselves too. So... Mostly perception is drawing upon, is traveling down this pathway which actually stimulates craving or aversion or disconnection. Because perception traveling down that memory pathway is actually triggering not only our memory but our emotional memory. I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this. And it's all starting here in this relationship between Vedana and perception. We're building a world, and it's a world that we keep traveling in over and over and over again that actually often so inhibits seeing anything anew in this life. We get locked in that picture, but that picture holds our relationship to it. So the may, one of the major jobs of mindfulness is to sever the link between Vedana and perception and the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion and disconnection or delusion. It's the primary job of mindfulness that I can see Millet without launching into aversion. I can see Kuan Yin without launching into craving. I can see the person who I saw 10 years ago who was so irritating without launching in to slotting them, fixing them, into a particular person who is like this. So this is one of the primary jobs of mindfulness is, is to sever the link between Vedana perception and the underlying tendencies. As, as I mentioned yesterday, one of the primary jobs of mindfulness is to clean up the field of perception. So it's not all, always drawing into these craving aversion, delusion patterns. Blake once said that if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. So what we see is that when perception is drawing on these tendencies, the world appears very finite. You, know? you are, I am, this is ugly, this is beautiful, that's attractive, that's not attractive. So what is actually happening through that linkage, which often feels really automatic, between Vedana and perception and craving and aversion, what is actually happening in that process is that we start to posit the feeling tones as being implicit in the object. Okay, so millet is intrinsically undesirable. Kuan Yin statue is intrinsically beautiful. Now, as we posit those feeling tones into the object, we're actually creating a self in that object. 
You with me on this? We're creating a self in that object. And that self that we've created in that object is completely relational to this self of the moment, which is caught in its craving and aversion and its perception and its memories, its emotional memories. Now, that self that we've posited in the object in that relational sense, we're going to establish a relationship that says, I want more of this because it, it you know, consoles me, supports me, flatters me, or I need to get rid of this. So we've created an oppositional relationship through aversion. This is happening all so quickly. So the job of mindfulness is to sever that automatic link. It is to question our views. It's to know where this sense of self is being created and solidified through craving and aversion. It's to question the views we have. It's to release the finiteness that is created through craving and aversion and clinging to allow things to be infinite, unfolding processes, us too, another person too, unfolding processes that can't be pinned in place through craving and aversion and the views that are formed. Imagine the liberation of that. How, how that would maybe be the greatest gift of compassion we would offer to another person is to liberate them from our view about them and how our view is solidified through those patterns of craving and aversion that have been triggered by perception. Can you imagine that gift of compassion inwardly to liberate ourselves from our fixed views of who we are? You know, I'm a failure, I'm hopeless, I'm incapable, or constantly being triggered and re-triggered by craving and aversion and, of course, the name we have put upon it. Now, we are always going to have navigational perception in this life. It's very useful. It's what makes us functional human beings. You know, it's, it's what allows me to come in this room and sit on my cushion rather than trying to sit on the bell. It, it rather, it's what allows us to get in the right car when we want to leave here. You know, it's what gets us to the right address, you know, and into bed with the right person. This is all really useful. It's all really, this is just navigational perception. You know, it's, it's totally neutral. There's discernment perception, you know, of actually beginning to discern, you know, what is. But there's this whole layer that's really tied into Vedana that gets into this world-constructing process that what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about, what we think about, we proliferate about, what we proliferate about becomes the shape of our mind. Hmm? The process, this is a very quick process. But then the work of sati here is that the process begins to slow down. Hmm? Where do we start to sense it? We might start to sense it in the proliferating, in the dwelling, and we know something's going on here in shaping the mind, you know. We might spot that process in those impulses of craving and aversion. We might spot that process in the formation of a view that says you are, this is. And we realize for ourselves this implicit nature that we've 
uh, posited and a sensory impression can actually change moment to moment. You know, tomorrow we may love Millet. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not it, it, it's not implicit. There's very few areas of life where Vedana is actually implicit. You know, physical pain is unpleasant. Grief is unpleasant. There's very few areas of life where Vedana is actually implicit and the rest of it is all changing. It's all changing. So in our practice, we're learning to be really, really, really curious about how our world is being shaped, seeing the many, many different shapes of our world in a single day. We're really starting to notice those shifts inwardly, beginning to track that process and to see that we're not actually imprisoned by this process at all. They were only imprisoned by the, that process in the absence of sati, in the absence of curiosity, in the absence of investigation. And sometimes I think of this practice as this movement towards the infinite rather than that which is bounded and made finite. That was a much longer period of instruction than I planned on. Apologies for that. Okay, so let's sit. Let's sit. (coughs) Just settling into the body. And just a simple knowing of the body in this moment. Sensing the different places of contact, the different sensations that are present. And perhaps just sensing their Vedana tone, those that are pleasant, those that are unpleasant, those that are neither. curiosity of seeing, of holding that spectrum free of craving that it has to be different, free of aversion that has to go away, free of disconnection creates distance. Simply knowing whatever in your body is present in this moment. Sensing the body, listening. The sounds, the quietude. Sensing the shape of the mind in this moment. 
the mood, the thoughts. So just a sense of the Vedana tone, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Establishing mindfulness, sati within this moment, this present moment wakefulness, present moment recollection, here in the body, here in the body breathing. Also here in the moments your attention is drawn elsewhere. Simple knowing, sensing.
So as Christina pointed out, this is the heart of the retreat today. And um, I guess I would wonder whether that can be a dedication to living today as wholly and as completely as possible. Someone once said, only this day dawns to which we are awake. Well, the day doesn't even happen if we're not around for it. So to dedicate oneself to being as present as possible, to keep one's heart open even when it hurts. To keep one's heart open even when it hurts is really a key because things go up, they go down, they change. We have noticed this many, many times throughout our time here and in our life. So this kind of dedication today can be very uplifting and heartening and help to keep us to a kind of steadfastness, a kind of steadiness, where patience and perseverance are really predominant, rather than going with the ways that the wind pushes us, being in obedience to our conditioning. We're breaking free today in other words. So, whatever the day is for you, whether you know, it's pleasant or painful or this or that, can this dedication hold you from beneath? Is it possible to continue to walk the path, come what may? To look at the different places throughout the day when there's the tendency to be disconnected or be spaced out or kind of be lost in habits. And those of you who have been here many times before, and some of you have been here many, many, many times before, you get into your retreat habits so easily. You know, that things, this is what I do at this time of day. This is what I always do at lunch. I have to do this, I have to do that. And just to encourage you to loosen up around it and experiment a bit and see what happens if you do things slightly differently, whatever that may mean for you. The walking, of course, is such a key part of the schedule, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and different ways to engage in the walking. You really have to find your own way into the walking. And if you haven't discovered the beauty of the walking yet, I would encourage you today to put energy into it so that perhaps you can discover it. If you don't do it, then you definitely can't find out what it's all about and why people like it and why you know it's part of the schedule. You just won't find out if you don't actually do it yourself. So, you know, just the simple touch of the bottoms of the feet touching the floor, that's enough. You know, that's enough. That's enough. You can be aware of the entire body moving through space, the sense of spaciousness around the body, the sense of spaciousness within the body. So the whole body, the totality of the body moving through space is quite wonderful. You can be aware when the eyes shift elsewhere, what's happening. When you hear a sound, what's happening. To stay awake and sensitive to the totality of your experience, the totality of the body and the totality of the environment. 
And you can also be aware of mental states as you're walking. You can be aware of accompanying yourself through mental states as you walk. You know, walking with a mental state. You can also walk through a mental state if you want to experience that. You know, there can be this great method of throwing the mental state, a little bit imaginative, but you throw it out in front of you on the street ahead and then you just walk right through it. So play around with that if you would like to as well. But find a, find a way to engage wholeheartedly with the walking today. All right, so just to remind you that um, if you didn't have an interview yesterday, you'll have one today. So please be sure to look on the schedule again today to make sure that um, if you had an interview two days ago, you'll, your name will be on the schedule today. All right, so have a, have a dedicated and lovely and beautiful day, even if it's not. Okay? <laughs> hmm.